All right, so we're going to continue in the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 5 right now. And so there's some Bibles sitting around you. And just so you know where we're going, next week uh, I will be one of the ones not here. I'll be out of town. Uh, I was asked to go speak at one of, another Soma church that we're connected with in Denver, and so I'll be there. But Anthony will be preaching next week in Daniel chapter 6, which is uh, possibly like when you think of the book of Daniel or Daniel as a person, this is the story that comes to mind in Daniel chapter 6, the lion's den. Uh, it, it's kind of like the ultimate story of that book. And it also, it ends, it wraps up that first half of Daniel, literally half, there's 12 chapters, and the first half that is story-driven. And then we get into chapter 7 through 12 where it starts getting like, here's all the weird, crazy dreams Daniel had in detail during this story that took place. And so that will be super fun and confusing to go through, but it'll be great. Uh, but this week, I get to look at chapter 5 with you. And just as a reminder, as you're turning there, we're going to read the whole chapter but a reminder of why we've been going through the book of Daniel and why we chose to do that, uh, not just to look into what many people see as like, oh, these prophecies of maybe the end times or these like uh, really cool historical stories, but because we believe that what's happening for God's people in this book of Daniel that really happened thousands of years ago, that we can relate to that even now today in our culture and in our society. And so a really cool thing is our missional community, the last time we had dinner together, we, we started reading a little bit of Jeremiah. And if you don't know, Jeremiah was a prophet around the time that God's people were taken into exile by Babylon, all right? And so he was the one who was going around saying, giving warnings, like, because you have not been following the Lord, because you wanted to set up human kings for yourselves, because you wanted to establish a kingdom for your own name, because you even started worshiping these other false gods in place of the real true God, you are now being taken into exile. And there's this other prophet that rises up around chapter 27 of Jeremiah who starts saying similar things, the same, same things that Jeremiah is saying, these warnings, and the king of Judah has him killed for it. He doesn't want to hear it. Like that's how, that's how bad it had gotten. So they don't want to hear this word from the Lord. So they have that prophet killed. For whatever reason, God preserves the life of Jeremiah. So then this other false prophet rises up, and he's like, I don't want that to happen to me. So here's what God says. Guys, it's cool. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, Babylon's coming in and taking some of our people, like Daniel and those guys. But in two years, God's going to release them. God's going to set us free. It's, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. Go on living how you're living, worshiping those false gods doing what you're doing. No worries, right? And Jeremiah is like, his response is basically, yeah, if only that were true. But it's not. And so sure enough, you see that Babylon comes in and it's not two years, it's many, many more years. And so you, you turn over from that, from that discussion happening in chapter 28, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, you get this very famous prophetic voice from Jeremiah. Does anybody know Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans I have for you, right? Declares the Lord. Plans for you to prosper, right? Like how often do we take that one verse and we do the same thing that false prophet was doing. We use it to tickle our ears and to like make us feel warm and fuzzy. Like don't worry, whatever's happening in your life, 
God knows the plans he has for you, plans for you to prosper. And like we picture like just swimming in dollar bills when we hear that word prosper, right? But it, no, no, it's in the context of Jeremiah going, no, 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 listen, God is not gonna deliver us in two years. You guys, we have, we have abandoned him and he is bringing us into exile now, but he's not going to abandon us. In fact, what he wants us to do is be the people he's always called us to be. When you get to Babylon, build parks, build houses, marry, have families, raise children, love your neighbors, be the people God has always called us to be, a people who are showing the rest of the world, the rest of the nations, what a good God is like. Now you're gonna do it in the midst of another nation. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna be challenged. Some of you may even be killed. Some of you might get thrown into a fiery furnace as we've read, but God is going to be with us. He knows the plans he has for you. That's the context of that. And I want us to hear that because as we're going through the book of Daniel and some of these stories, it could sound so distant and far off. Like we, don't, we aren't even ruled by kings. We can't relate necessarily. But we live in a culture. We live in a society just like every other culture and society on the face of this earth throughout history that worships and idolizes so many other things other than the one true king. Isn't that true? And we are called to the same thing, to live in the midst of that culture in a way that shows the rest of the watching world what this God is like. In a way that as as you're living in America or Ecuador in 2019, 2020, and onward, how are you living a life that is so distinct, so unique, and so filled with God's love that people around are going like, there's something here. The way Nebuchadnezzar eventually turns because he sees the way Daniel is living, right? And it's gotta be something more unique than just like our neighbors see that we disappear on Sunday mornings for a couple hours and we come back. You know, could be going to a football game or wherever else everybody else went this morning, right? How are our lives so distinct and so unique that the world that is watching sees the true king. That's what the book of Daniel invites us into. And so we see that happening and we see that they, they enter in and that God was telling them, look, you wanted your own kings, your human kings, and I'm basically ripping all that away from you now. I'm tearing this kingdom of Israel away from you. And you're getting brought into another kingdom that doesn't even worship me. But eventually I'm gonna do the same thing to them. I'm gonna tear that kingdom from them too so they'll see I'm the true God, I'm the true king. And so they enter in and you got King Nebuchadnezzar and he's a little bit crazy, right? And he's very, very arrogant and full of himself and he's getting angry when people won't bow down to the statue he created for himself. And he's throwing people into fires and he's threatening to tear people limb from limb. And then you get to chapter four where this, amazing, incredible thing happens. The book of Daniel uh, is most likely made up of a lot of different writings from a lot of different authors. It's, it's a compilation. And chapter four is written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king of Babylon, the one who brought the nation of Babylon into this powerhouse entity. It, it's risen to, it, he's the most powerful person on earth. And in chapter four, he writes, let me tell you about the real king. 
That's how he starts off. And he goes, this is, let me tell you a story. And he takes you back to when he was walking around his palace and looking at Babylon and going, look at what I built with my own hands. And that God, because of his pride and arrogance, God strikes him down. He, he tears that away from him. He makes him go insane and he loses his kingdom for a little bit. And he lives like an animal out in the fields. And then eventually, by God's grace, Nebuchadnezzar turns his heart to God. And he gets his mind back. And he gets his kingdom back. And he ends it with saying, this is the true king who reigns forever. His kingdom will never be taken away. This God of Israel. And so you're thinking, like, this is awesome. If, if the book of Daniel ends at chapter 4, that's a good story, Right? Finally, this king who was threatening to murder people for not worshiping him is now worshiping the one true God. And like Daniel's good with him and his friends are good with him. Life's going to be good in Babylon. But you turn the page and in chapter 5 we see there's a new king. And it's not, it's not going well anymore. And I want to remind us of that because so many times when we put our hope in something else, like, oh man, if, if Nebuchadnezzar would just... <laughs> Follow the true God like we're going to be all right. For a time, the problem is you still can't trust a king that worships the true king because that king's going to eventually die. And you're going to get another king in place. And so if you've been putting your hope and your trust in, if we just get the right president in office, you know, no matter how good they are, and they, none of them have been that good, there's going to be another president after them, right? If we just get the right political party in power, if, if we just get the right, we need a king a kingdom, a government, a society that will be established eternally, forever, that never fails, and that always does what is good, right, and perfect. So we turn the page, Daniel chapter 5, read along with me. I'm going to be reading, we have up on the screen ESV, you have on the tables here ESV, I know we use that often, I'm going to just to kind of jar things in your mind a little bit. Read from another version, the CSB. Uh, but you could follow along in the ESV if, if you're like super committed to that. That's okay. We're going to get to a, a verse where you're going to be like, whoa, it doesn't say that. And I, we're going to see why I'm reading out of the CSB this morning. There's one particular verse that is like startling to me. Uh, and I think it's translated best this way. So, But for now, first four verses, Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar, not Nebuchadnezzar anymore. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's stop right there for one second. And let me just pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see not only your word this morning, but that your word would illuminate our hearts, our minds, to see you more fully. God, that you would transform us to look more and more like citizens of your kingdom, children of you, Father, in Jesus' name. By the power of your spirit, we pray, amen. 
Have you guys ever seen the uh, Carl's Jr. commercials a few years ago where like Carl's Jr.'s dad comes back? Did you guys ever see those? A few years ago, the idea was like Carl Jr. was ruining things. He was having all these Super Bowl ads that were showing scantily clad women eating burgers. And like people were lashing out at Carl Jr., the company, for it. So their idea for the commercial was Carl Sr. was going to come in and clean things up, right? And so the commercial is Carl Sr. coming in and like he got little punk Carl Jr. like, what's up, dad? And his feet are up on the desk and he's like, get your feet off my desk. And he starts like, you know, making things right again, right? That's kind of the image I get with King Belshazzar here. Uh, king Belshazzar is actually not the king right now. If you know your history, we're going to read in chapter 5, King Belshazzar seems like he's the last king of Babylon. If you know your history, you know it's actually King Nabonidus is historically known as the final king of Babylon. Belshazzar is his son. He's actually acting in place of him right now. Uh, and we, it's cool because for the longest time, people would be like, uh, this story in the Bible doesn't really seem to jive with our historical account of who was the last king, so can we really trust it? And what... Uh, Recently, actually, archaeologists have found is this thing called the Nabonidus Cylinder, and it's stuff that he wrote down and chronicled of his life, and it talks about him being away from his kingdom for a time and handing the throne over to none other than his son, Belshazzar. So the history is King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who brings Babylon to its great position of power. King, remember, King Nebuchadnezzar went away for a little bit. We just talked about that. Someone else had to rule in his place, right? And then he comes back and gets his kingdom again after he stopped being insane and he started trusting God. So then he, when he dies, his son, whose name was Evil Marduk, by the way, who names your kid Evil Marduk? I don't know, maybe it meant something different in their culture. I don't know. But anyway, so he rules for like, know, like two years or something really short and then his brother kills him. And then his brother is a king for a while. And then the brother-in-law... So their sister's husband takes over. Like he, he, he ends up infiltrating and taking over. He's a general, General Nabonidus. But he's a general. He doesn't like all the politics of running a kingdom. And so for many for times, he would, he would just leave, and he would leave Belshazzar, his son, in charge. So that's the picture we have here. And this dude is just like, yeah, I'm the king. My dad lets me do whatever I want, and he's going to throw a great party and a great feast. And listen, I love a party as much as anyone, but this party's starting to get a little bit out of hand, right? And it says, under the influence of the wine he's drinking, so he's a little wasted now, and he's not making good choices. He's going, oh, yeah, you know those things that, like, my dad, my grandfather took from that one kingdom, Jerusalem? Yeah, they're like our slaves now. Let's get all their stuff. It's, it's for this God that they worship, but we're going to drink out of them, and we're going to worship our gods, and it's a total slap in the face, not only to the Israelite people and their customs, but to the God that his grandfather had written about being the one true king. And so we pick up verse 5 with what happens next. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself. CSB right there, you guys. And his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, 
Chaldeans and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Why the third highest? Belshazzar's second, right? He's not the king. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Pause right there for a second at the end of verse nine. Does that story sound familiar? History repeats itself, right? Nebuchadnezzar would have a dream and he would go, whoa, this is scary, I don't understand it. Bring in all the magicians, all the wise men, tell them to interpret the dream for me. None of them can do it. He does it a couple times. Again, none of them can do it. And now his grandson here, Belshazzar, what does this writing mean? Bring in all the smart people, bring in all the, the magicians, bring in all the wise men. What does it mean? None of them can do it. And so he's freaking out. But I love, I love the way he responds here. Like his face turned pale, his thoughts so terrified him, verse six, that he soiled himself. What does your translation say? His limbs gave way, right? Okay, that's a big difference there. Did his limbs give way and he kind of fell to the ground or did the dude crap himself? I'm sorry, that was, that was pretty brash. Maybe he peed himself. We actually don't know because this is what the, probably both. This is what the, the original text says, okay? It actually says in the Aramaic that the knots of his loins were loosened. What does that mean? And especially when you're like, back in the day translating King James Version, and you're like, oh, let's be proper here. Uh, what, the knots of his loins, listen, I don't know, maybe that's like, uh, his loins is close to his hips, maybe his hips, maybe that's what it is. Like he just like, he, he lost control of standing, or there's not knots in your hips. Like maybe it's talking about your knees. Those kind of look knotty, right? Like, so somehow we get this translation that his knees knocked together and his limbs gave way. But the original text says that the knots of his loins were loosened. They were opened up, giving way for who knows what to come out, right? And I love that because that's how terrified this guy was. He's sitting there one moment just like feet up on the desk, having a feast, drinking wine. It's flowing. He's having a party with all of his people, Bring in my wives, my plentiful wives. Bring in my concubines. You guys know what those are, right? Google it if you don't. Bring in everybody. Let's, let's throw a feast, right? Don't Google image it. Just Google word it, okay? And then you're like having this great party. And the next moment, the dude soils his pants. This is a terrifying scene. Could you imagine a hand? It's funny because some commentators I read uh, and some like other pastors I've heard teach on that, who get that translation right, go, oh man, what a, what a sissy this Belshazzar. Like, can you believe, like, he's not fit to be a king, that he just loses it like that. Like, seriously, there's a hand that just showed up out of nowhere, a giant hand, and it starts writing with its fingers in the wall. I would probably soil myself too. This is a scary scene especially if you don't know what it means. Where did that just come from? What are the words? What's it saying to us right now? I need to know. I am willing to give the highest position of honor I can give rightfully to anybody who can just tell me what this says. 
Even if it's bad news, I need to know it. And when you get this history repeating itself, none of them can do it. Who do you think is going to be able to do it? Let's find out. Verse 10. Because of the outcry of the king, like he's freaking out, it's loud, and his nobles, the queen, by the way, another, uh, the actual translation of this is the queen mother. So this is likely the queen wife of Nabonidus. Remember, Nabonidus was brother-in-law to Nebuchadnezzar's sons. So this is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, mother of Belshazzar, okay? So husband's away, king is away, son is running things, and mom is just like, my son, acting a fool. What are we gonna do, right? So the queen came to the banquet hall, and this is how she, she approaches him, and I just hear like, the disdain possibly in her voice. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, another translation there is your father. If you read in your ESV, father, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, it's because the Aramaic has no translation for the word ancestor or grandfather. And so you know how like, you would, you'd see all throughout scripture, Father Abraham, and it's several generations later. This is the way you would just say your ancestor. So CSB says, in the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Did you not learn anything from your grandfather? You know the stories. You know all this, Belshazzar. Like, she's coming in like, all right, I got to, because of custom, may the king live forever. Stop freaking out. Stop acting a fool. You know what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, my father. He was freaking out, and none of these guys could do it. But there was a guy, remember? He came from those Israelites. In fact, your grandfather named him Belteshazzar. Does that sound familiar? What does Belteshazzar mean? Yeah, we said this on the first week. It was protect the life of the king by the power of Bel the God that Nebuchadnezzar worshiped. What's this king's name? Belshazzar, sounds very similar, right? It's a variant of the same name, like Jonas and Jonah would be, or even like Christopher and Christian. Like if you look at the meanings of those names, they both mean the same thing. And so it's a variant of the same name. Do you remember this guy who had your same name? You might even possibly be, we don't know this, but possibly even named after him, right? A lot of uh, scholars believe that difference with the T-E, Belteshazzar, protect the life of the king by the power of Bel. Like that difference of taking it out, Belshazzar could just mean you are the king by the power of Bel, right? And so this guy, he's here to protect you. Go to him. But I love how she's primarily using, she reminds him, you remember your grandfather named him Belteshazzar, but what does she refer to him as? She calls him Daniel. 
Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have all this. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. We didn't see this so often before in the older days of Daniel, in his younger days. But now there seems to be this dignity that she's bestowing onto him to give him back his birth name and to take away his slave name. This is years and years later. Remember, Daniel was a young kid in the first early days of Nebuchadnezzar being king. Now he's probably an older man. There's been stories. Belshazzar knows about him, but he's not really like, he's not the first person he calls on. It's been a long time. We don't really know what Daniel's been up to in these days. We do know that he's been given a place of honor and power from the earlier king, from Nebuchadnezzar. But for whatever reason, Belshazzar doesn't recognize that the same way because he's willing to give out third highest of the kingdom to anybody who can say this and he doesn't even call Daniel in, right? So there's a sense that like he's kind of faded into a little bit of obscurity, but his mom remembers. There's this guy who could do all this. She gives him the dignity of his original name, which I think is really cool. So summon him in. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, are you Daniel? Well, he uses his real name. One of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah. I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I've heard about you, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and he kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from the people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. He's giving him a history lesson here of his own grandfather. How quickly you've forgotten. Let me tell you about your heritage. Let me tell you about your ancestry. Let me tell you about the history of this kingdom that you are ruling right now. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote this down because he wanted all people to know who the true king was. Do you think his own grandson would have at least heard about this? Yeah, in fact, if we keep reading, verse 22. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. He's not giving him a history lesson because he's never heard it. He's reminding him of what's true. I want to pause right there for one moment. Because this is a weird story, right? And it's hard to put ourselves in those shoes. 
But how many things do we know about God, who he is, what he has done, that we don't live according to? How many times do we need to be reminded of who he is and of who we are? This is why we read in our confession and assurance this morning from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, which talks about when I look at the sky, when I look at the heavens and the stars and the moon and the sun and the clouds and everything that you made with your fingers, Psalm 8 says. You made the whole universe with your fingers. I gotta ask, who am I? Who is mankind that you would even consider us? We gotta remind ourselves who we are and who this God is. This is a God of great glory, might, and power. And yet, the psalm goes on to say, and yet you have crowned us with glory. You have given us a position that's just a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have given us dominion and power and authority over all these things you have made, and you've called us to care for them. That's incredible. And that's what Daniel's reminding him here. Nebuchadnezzar knew that God appointed him as king, that he's the one who sets up kings and takes them down. He did it with Israel. He did it with your grandfather. He's gonna do it with you. Verse 23, you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. Verse 25, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez, if you're wondering why that's a different word than parson used earlier, parson is the plural word of it. Perez is singular means that your kingdom has been divided and given to thee, why we use plural and singular, to the Medes and the Persians. These are all Aramaic words used to describe measurements and weights. Okay? So parson is the the plural, para is singular, but it's also a similar word that they would use for Persia. And so it's kind of a dual meaning there. And he's saying this kingdom is being divided, given up to the Medes and the Persians. Do you remember that dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, I believe in chapter two of that statue, the head of gold that represented his kingdom of Babylon, and then the next one was this um, breastplate of silver, right, and it kept going down and degrading a little bit, and he was told, he was warned by Daniel, your kingdom's gonna come to an end, there's gonna be another kingdom that comes after you. And many scholars believe that's the Medo-Persian empire that's about to come and take over now. Verse 29, let's, let's finish up the chapter. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and to his credit, true to his word, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel didn't even want that. He turned it down. 
He gave it anyway. That's fine. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. And we're going to hear more about King Darius and that Medo-Persian empire as we move forward. But what a crazy story, right? That very night, he dies. He's just living it up in luxury, sitting on the king's throne, having this feast with all his people, mocking the God of Israel, praising his false gods that cannot see, hear, or understand, while he's mocking the God that gives him breath. And the finger of God that created all things, we're told in Psalm 8, shows up and gives him a message on the wall. You have been weighed, you have been measured, you've been found wanting, your days are numbered, and I'm giving your kingdom away to someone else. That's a pretty terrifying message. And sure enough, that night it happens. And you can look in historical accounts and know that that night, the Medes and the Persians had, they had formed an alliance. That night, they were outside of this palace while he's having this party in his arrogance. Partying so loud, he doesn't even know that they're coming up to his footsteps, to his doorstep. And they infiltrate, they kill him, they take his kingdom. And you go, that's great. Cool, cool history lesson. I'm not a king or a queen. I'm not ruling anything. What does this have to do with me, right? It's interesting that the hand of God chooses to use words that talk about measurements and weights for everyday items. So a little more history lesson for us real quick. All the way back in Deuteronomy, when God's giving rules and laws for his people how to live, and they're figuring out how to enter into this new era of society and how to do it in a way that honors the Lord, and he's telling them how to do this. Listen, you've now developed currency and trade. Let me tell you how to do it the right way. And he gives them this rule in Deuteronomy 25 that you make sure you use accurate measurements when you're weighing out your flour and your barley and those other things that you're selling. Because there would be people who would use stones on these scales and they would trick them and use a lighter stone that didn't weigh as much to tilt the scales a little bit and pretend like there's more flour there I'm giving you so you owe me more money. And God was saying as a way for you to care for one another and to care for outsiders, this is very important, use proper weights and measurements. And then in Proverbs 20, we see that he's using, the writer of Proverbs 20 now is using that same law as an illustration of what's righteous and unrighteous. That those with differing, varied scales and measurements are the unrighteous. But those who use accurate measurements are the righteous. Why does God care so much about how you're weighing out your flour? Because he cares about how you are caring for one another. And he cares about how you are caring for this world that he's given us dominion to. And remember, God is the one who sets up kings and takes them down. He's the one who gives authority and can take it away. He's the one who's in control of all of it. And we are called to be as representatives caring for all of his creation and for one another. And he's adamant about it. 
adamant about it. And so Proverbs 20 uses this as an illustration, not just talking about when you weigh out your food, though, okay? When you go to Sprouts and you're weighing out your bag of flour, it's not the only thing he's talking about. What he's saying is that you yourself, when you are living a righteous life with God, you are found and measured accordingly. But when you are living unrighteous, your weight does not match up. This is what this hand of God is telling Belshazzar. Basically is saying you've fallen short. You don't, you don't add up. You're not enough. And isn't that what Romans 3.23 tells us? That all have fallen short of the what? Glory of God. What does that word glory mean? It's another word for that. The weightiness of God. The measurement of God. We have all fallen short of that. Remember, we want to see ourselves as Daniel is a story, but could it be we're more like Belshazzar? The reality is we have all fallen short of measuring up to who God is. And we're supposed to be partnering with him and ruling as his representatives, but we fall short, we don't add up, we don't measure up. I got a couple other verses I want us to see in relation to that. This is in Psalm 39. O Lord, verses four and five, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. There's this play, uh, a pretty well-known play someone wrote that's 35 seconds long. It's called Breath. You can find versions of it on YouTube. And when you look it up, this is how the play starts. The, the stage is completely dark, and you hear a cry like an infant being born, right? And then the lights come up and you see nothing but trash on the stage. And then the lights start to fade and you hear this gurgling like someone taking their last breath. And it's dark. And that's the whole play. 35 seconds. And what the play is saying is you are trash. Harsh, right? Like your, your, your life is a fleeting breath it's nothing. It's used up and then it's gone like trash is tossed aside. <laughs> That's kind of what the psalmist is saying here too, right? We don't add up. We don't measure up to the fullness of God. There is a problem here. Why don't we have this hand showing up and painting this on our walls right now, right? Let's go to the next verse. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the what? measure of Christ's gift. We fall short of glory. We're in need of grace. Ephesians 4 goes on to say in verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Did you catch what that's saying? Like, is that good news or not? We fall short of the glory of God, but the grace of Jesus means that he comes and he fills us and he brings us up to the full measurement of himself. That in Jesus, we can actually measure up. We can add up to the fullness of God. Let me give you one more. We started with Romans, right? Verse 23 in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but Paul went on to write, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the story. Belshazzar is sitting there, and he has completely disregarded the God who has given him breath and life and even allowed him to sit on the throne. And God shows up and says, you don't measure up. You are not fit to rule as king, as my representative. I am taking this away from you. And the reality is that God has the right to do that to each and every single one of us, not with a kingdom, but with our very breath. And instead, instead, Jesus enters in and he stands in our place and he helps us to measure up. He fills us to that fullness, to that maturity, to the stature of God. I want us to think about this. Psalm 8, we heard the fingers of God created all things, right? And then we see in this story, the finger of God comes and writes this terrifying message on the wall in the palace of Babylon. Is there another point in the story of God that you hear about the fingers of God writing something? Yeah. John 8, we hear this story of Jesus stooping down and writing with his finger something in the sand, right? And who's with him when he does that? There's a woman there who's been caught in the act of adultery. And all these religious elite leaders come up and they're trying to test Jesus and they're going, doesn't she deserve to be stoned, to be killed according to the law? And Jesus starts writing something in the same. We don't know what he's writing. But as, he, as the finger of God himself is writing something down, he stands in the gap for this woman. And he tells them, who of you are able to stand and not be condemned for a sin that you've done? If so, go ahead and stone her, condemn her. And they all one by one start leaving. And he looks at her and he says, who is here left to condemn you? And she says, nobody. And she should have said, nobody except you because you're still here. And the truth is, he had every right to condemn her. He's the only one who could. He's the only one who had no sin of his own where he could actually condemn her for what she had done. But now the finger of God is writing something in the sand full of grace. And he says, I don't condemn you either. The, question, the thing she didn't even go on to say, he answers it for, just don't even worry, I'm not going to do it either but I want you to go and sin no more. I want you to go and live a life that trusts in who the true king is. And that finger of God that wrote in the sand on the hands of Jesus, that same king is standing in our place now too, helping us to measure up. He fills that gap for us. And he is writing grace for your story as well. And he's inviting you to enter into that. Will you? That's the invitation. Let's pray.